Thanks for joining us for First College Ministries College Worship Gathering. We hope that what you hear will encourage you and challenge you to be more like Jesus in your everyday lives. If you're a college student in the Tuscaloosa area, please join us Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. for college worship. You can learn more about First College Ministry at firstcollegeministry.org. Um, if I can, I want us to hasten directly to the text this evening because what we get to cover sets an incredible tone for this new series that we're beginning tonight, walking through the letter to the Ephesians. So if you would, we're going to jump straight to Ephesians chapter 1. And um, if you have a Bible with you, Ephesians chapter 1, if you have it on your phone, we'd ask that you just go ahead and scroll over there. Um, if you would like a physical copy of God's Word and you don't have one, please come find us afterwards. We would love to give you one. All right, so Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to be beginning in verse 3. So hear now the word of the Lord, according to the Apostle Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we all acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. If you are willing and able when I say this is the word of the Lord, please say Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity we have, again, to just be here in your house, to be together, to be a family of faith, to walk through your scripture together. And we ask God, again, that you would make a way for us, Jesus, that we would heed these words, that our lives would be changed, God, that we would be able to encounter you in a way maybe we haven't before. And we ask God, again, that you would speak, for your servants are listening it's in your precious name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. So what we've just read is an authentic, genuine, emotional response to the goodness of God. And I'm a little wary because, you know, we, um, most of us in this room are Baptists, I would say, or at least have been around Baptists long enough to where you feel like you don't have to emote about Jesus. So I'm just going to go ahead and open the door for you tonight that if you want to emote about Jesus, it's okay. We can get a little lively in here. That's fine. Because here, Paul is emoting about Jesus. And Paul, whom we've discussed previously as being one of the greatest theologians, missionaries, evangelists, and preachers or pastors of all time, he's all but enraptured at the outset of narrating this letter to this church in Ephesus. It's as if he must pause and revel in the wonder of God before he begins addressing that local congregation and its needs. This is what one of my former seminary professors describes as an outburst of praise. An outburst of praise. And I want us to see this evening, 
because often I feel like we tend to home in on these particulars of passages without grasping their full scope. We like to know exactly what that passage means for each of our walks of faith, but we tend to miss the larger, grander notions at times. And the theologian David Wells once said, the self, meaning the person, the self is a canvas too narrow, too cramped to contain the largeness of Christian truth. And I believe he is right. And some of what we cover this evening and throughout this letter can and should be applied to an individual believer's life. There's no question. However, the scope of the implications of God's work extends far beyond our individual spiritual lives. And I really want us to begin understanding that scope tonight. So in this passage, Paul is worshiping the Lord and he is excited to do so. He's excited, so excited, in fact, that this entire passage that we just read, which was multiple English sentences, is actually one 202-worded Greek sentence. Think about that. Um, Alexander and I were talking because he agreed to read earlier today or earlier this week, I'm not sure, but he says when he's in front of people, he, like me, we start just going, right? I think this is what Paul is doing. He's so excited, he so is reveling in who God is and what God has done that he just blurts out, he narrates this 202-worded sentence in the original language. It's as if he could not contain himself. And he seeks to minister to these Ephesian Christians. He wants them to know how deserving God is of their praise. And I would say, even today, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, wants us to understand how deserving God is of our praise. And I really want that for us this evening as well. I want us to worship God for all he is doing and all he has done and all he has yet to do. And my prayer is as we begin this series, especially by exploring this passage, that we recognize all that follows in this letter, everything that's subsequent to this evening, to the Ephesian believers of Paul's day, that as he goes forward, he does so saturating every word with his very wonderful and utterly gorgeous idea that God is worthy of our praise. But why is he worthy of our praise? Because all we know, and I do mean all that you and I know, all of creation, of this life, of salvation, and even as we consider the life to come, all that we know is from God. He is the agent of every blessing. And Paul knows this. He states in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And Paul utilizes this traditional Hebraic prayer formula at the start here, where he notes that he desires to bless God because God has blessed him. It's this recognition prayer of gratitude. And it is the ways in which God has blessed us that I want us to focus on in our remaining time together tonight, because if you haven't noticed yet, the entirety of our passage speaks to the agency of God. And what I mean is God being the actor in our lives, meaning he is the initiator of every good gift we know or every good gift that we could imagine. He is worthy of our praise. All of God is worthy of all our praise. And I say all of God intentionally because you see in this passage every person of the Godhead. And if you notice in the past, we've kind of skirted around a little bit of this because in, in certain moments, in certain contexts, it's not exactly appropriate for us to be like, hey, let's talk about the Trinity. Tonight, we cannot escape it. Because we see the very person of the Godhead, the Holy Trinity at work on humanity's behalf here. God the Father is mentioned at the outset as the great initiator. With Jesus the Christ, the begotten Son of God, as the Redeemer and agent of our salvation. And the Holy Spirit, who seals believers as God's own children. God is worthy of our praise. And I'll walk through that more specifically with you. So to begin with, 
I want us to consider that God the Father is worthy of our praise because he is the chooser. He is the chooser. So look with me again at verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 11 shares further thought, discussing those who believe in Christ for their salvation as having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of God's will. So a similar language. And I want to spend a moment here to discuss what I mean by God being the chooser. First, God is the great initiator. We've already talked about that. But as the great initiator, we can also call him the great elector. Then the Bible backs this up. And I really want you to hear me when I'm talking about this, because I think you need to understand that the Bible itself is a book that describes election. Now, I recognize some of you in this room may be beginning to have cold sweats, and you're like, whew, this is a trigger word in you know, Christian circles, this term election. But I want us to take a step back and consider, as I stated before, the grander scope of things when we discuss these terms. There is little to no doubt that God is a chooser or an elector when you read the scriptures. Genesis 1.1, what does God do? He chooses to create out of nothing. He says, let there be, and what? There was. He chose to create humanity, first Adam, and subsequently he saw fit and decided it was good to create Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 6 through 8, he chooses to judge the sinfulness of humanity and floods the earth, yet he preserves Noah and his family. He chooses them. In Genesis 12, he calls out Abram and chooses him to become the father of all of a nation that will bless all nations. And he confirms that choice in Genesis 15. And God later sets this people apart, this progeny of Abraham. He sets his people Israel apart. He loves them selflessly. And he later chooses to free his people from subjugation in Egypt, calling them out to be a nation of priests. And he calls them to be a light to all other nations. Through that nation... God chooses to send his only begotten son, Jesus, to do and does so from a lowly tribe and through an unlikely virgin teenager to be his mother. I think you might be getting my drift here. The fact is, God is the sovereign chooser. His will and his desire for humanity and the rest of creation is often seen as mysterious or outside the realm of our understanding and for good reason. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, you can read these words. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. So God gives humanity what humanity needs to trust him. And what is incredible, that he entrusts humanity with preserving the teaching of what he reveals to subsequent generations. He trusts us in that way. However, I do believe the mysteries of God call us not only to trust God all the more, but to stand in awe of him. Tony Marita, a pastor in North Carolina, states this. He says, it is difficult for finite creatures with three-pound fallen sinful brains to comprehend how this doctrine of election relates to God's love for all people and his impartiality, as well as how it relates to human choices. And he continues here, and this is very worth our attention. He says, we should be okay with mystery. How many of you are very comfortable with mystery? 
unknowns in your life. I mean, not like mystery novels, guys, but like, you know. Uh, we want to know what's next. He says we should be okay with mystery. And he continues, encountering mystery should be a cue to start worshiping. How many of us have ever thought that about the Lord? I don't understand this about him, so I want to worship all the more. Versus, I don't understand this about him, so I'm going to turn to the word and see if I can discover it. Because there are going to be things about the Lord that we reach a wall on when it comes to our finite intellectual ability. Our cognition is not eternal. It is not infinite. It does not equal the Lord of all creations. But that mystery should be a cue for us to start worshiping. So more than trying to figure out the full measure of what God's election means for believers and for non-believers, we need to again consider this larger scope. What is God's election, however it plays out? What does his election teach us about God himself? Well, more than anything, Paul links God's choosing with his love for those who believe in Jesus, his adopted children. There's always this link for Paul. Paul does the same thing elsewhere. In Romans 8, through 39, we read this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a link between his choosing of his elect, however we define that, and those elect being loved. It is ingrained. Also in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5, he notes, For we know, brothers, loved by God. There's that delineation there. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And based upon that last passage, I believe we can also grasp that those who trust in Christ for their salvation are known as the chosen ones because, please hear me here, they're known as the chosen ones because they have believed. And it reiterates what verse 13 of our main passage for tonight states. He reads, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So no matter how you interpret the term election or consider God's choice playing out in our individual lives, it is evident in Scripture that God is indeed sovereign. And neither you nor I would have a single hope of salvation unless he chose to make our salvation possible. That is noteworthy. He is worthy of praise because he has chosen to do so. He has made a way for us through his son Jesus. He did not have to. He wanted to. God initiated that for us. A completely unworthy people and that my friends, points to his love for us and his grace towards us. So I want us to see two last things as we consider God as the chooser for one who elects. Did this turn off? Okay. I'm just going to roll with this, all right? So I'm also really tired of this tape pulling on my neck. So we're going to do it. Amen, Rhett. 
Also, I'm coming down here, so get excited. All right. Be worried, Ben, because I'm a spitter. All right. So first, his gracious gift of salvation can and must promote in us true humility. I know there are many of us in this room tonight who do not come from a Baptist background, like I mentioned before, but I really appreciate how the Baptist faith and message, which is our denominational statement of faith, discusses this aspect of God's character. Please listen to these words. Election is the gracious purpose of God, according to which he regenerates. And what that means is he brings about new spiritual life in the sinner. According to which he regenerates, brings new life, transformation. How he justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious, please, this sentence is great. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. So in good Southern Baptist fashion, this statement leaves a lot to be interpreted because, you know, we, we would rather unite than divide. So we allow our churches to have autonomy in how we choose to interpret certain things in Scripture. However, there is one distilled truth in this, that God's sovereignty brings about our humility. And it must be so. His sovereignty is the crux of our salvation because he chose to make a way for us in salvation. He has made all things possible for you and me. He has made the breath we are breathing possible. He has made our redemption possible. He has chosen to do so, and for that reason alone, he is worthy of praise. His grace is a defining characteristic shown in his sovereign choices. But his choice also gives us purpose. I want to repeat that. His choices also give us purpose. Russell Moore, a pastor, theologian, and Christian author, writes this. He says, God is not some metaphysical airport security screener waving through the secretly approved and sending the rest into a holding tank for questioning. God is not treating us like puppets made of meat, forcing us along by his capricious whim. Instead, the doctrine of election tells us that all of us who have come to know Christ are here on this earth on purpose. That is a word someone needs this evening because I needed to be reminded of that just this afternoon. Instead, the doctrine of election, God's choosing to provide a way of salvation, tells us that all of us who have come to know Christ are here on purpose. You matter. You have a reason for existing for the kingdom of God. And he is calling you to that purpose. It's why we tell you every week that you're sent. You and I, if we are followers of Jesus, have not come to faith in him for no reason. We're meant to walk in his light. We're meant to lead lives that bring him glory. So God the Father is worthy of our praise because he has and he is choosing us through his son Jesus. And if that is mysterious to you, praise be to God. Wrestle in the tension of the mystery and let that cue you to worship. Because you and I have no grasp of why he would ever choose us in the first place, except for his grace. He has made a way for us. And because of his choice, we have the opportunity to walk with him and live lives of humility and purpose. So we looked at God the Father and his worth in the, our minds for praise. But now I want us to turn our attentions to the fact that God the Son is worthy of our praise because he is the Redeemer. 
Look with me again at verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What a rich few verses, right? I feel like we could spend a month right there. (laughs) There's so much contained in those short sentences, but the emphasis throughout is clearly that Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father, is the one with a capital O who redeems us from our sin in God's eyes. These verses summarize the gospel message, which we've covered over the last six weeks, but it expounds upon God's purposes for Jesus' ministry, his sacrifice, and his resurrection. And it's without question a critical fact for each of us here that we recognize Jesus is the chosen one with a capital O, the Messiah who calls all who come to him to their redemption. He is the catalyst of our salvation. And you and I have no other way to God except through him. This is exactly why he says in John 14, 6, what he does, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He's not being exclusive just to be exclusive. He's being factual. And if you recall from our reading earlier, verse 5 of our primary passage tells us that very truth clearly, that it is through Jesus we are chosen for adoption as sons, as co-heirs with Jesus. And all of this is according to God the Father's will. Can we stop there for just one moment? If you're thinking about the language here, and we don't have a ton of time to unpack this, but this adoption language means a legal adoption. The word is the same used throughout culture to say that I am taking this person as my legal heir. So we are entering into not merely a relationship where God makes us feel good about ourselves, where we feel like, oh, you know what, maybe we're forgiven. No, he's saying, you're mine, just like my son, the one whom sacrificed himself for you. He has made it possible for you to be the same as he is in my eyes, that you are one with him, you are co-heirs with Christ. This is where the Baptist in you needs to die and a little bit of that Pentecostal get going. (laughs) This is the truth of the gospel. This is amazing truth. Jesus' inheritance as the Son of God becomes ours as well. And what's incredible is how the scope of his redeeming work is emphasized in these verses. It is not merely applied to humanity. And this is what's probably a little strange to some of us. His redemption does not extend only to humanity, but to all of creation. This is where we get into some of that weirdness where we talk about end times and eschatology. That's a big churchy word for talking about the end of all things. But here we see that Christ's redemption is the redemption of creation. And it is the redeemed creation and eternal existence with God in that redeemed creation that believers in Jesus are to inherit. Now, I'm not going to sit here and try to tell you what that means, because we can look at the book of Revelation, we can look at Daniel, we can look at a number of apocalyptic passages in Scripture and be like, none of us agree on the exact interpretation. However, we can agree that Jesus has come, he has made a way, he's coming again, and it will be in victory and we will be with him for eternity if we're his. And verse 10 tells us that Christ has come to fulfill God's will. And I quote, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's like I mentioned earlier, we have a grander scale or scope of God's redeeming work to fathom together this evening. 
And my prayer is that it continues to lead us to a place of worship like it did, and I'm sure it still is for Paul right now. And I like how John Stott, a pastor theologian I greatly admire, puts it. He says, in the fullness of time, using the language from the scripture, in the fullness of time, God's two creations, his whole universe and his whole church will be unified under the cosmic Christ who is the supreme head of both. There's a book I read a long time ago. It's called Jesus with Dirty Feet. And in that book, Don Everts, the author, talks about this encounter that he has in a cabin where a moose comes up to the glass door at the back of the cabinet, or cabin, not cabinet. Um, and this moose, which, anybody ever seen a moose in person? Okay, not small. Not, you know, like, I want to go pet that thing. It's so cute. No, it's massive. It's giant. It's scary. And its antlers are huge. So you have this massive animal that stands approximately eight feet tall, looking down into this window. Everyone in the cabin is like this. <laughs> Just like, we, do we move? Like, I mean, they didn't expect him to charge or anything. But he said, in that moment, he's like, I have a moose messiah. And I know it sounds cheesy, but most of us, we approach Jesus as if he's the Michelin man. Like he's this chubby little thing that we want to hug. Instead of thinking that he is the cosmic creator of all things and that he's coming in victory and he's the king. I want to stand in front of him and be in awe. Because if we can't do it now, we will have a rude awakening when we're with him for eternity. Is he the Moose Messiah? I can't even say it without laughing. <laughs> but you see what I mean? If we're in awe of his creation, how much more should we be in awe of him? And it reminds me, <clears throat> considering this fullness of time and Christ's fullness of office as supreme redeemer, of Paul's Christ focused him at the beginning of his letter to the Colossians. It's one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. Beginning, chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Let me pause there for a moment. If in this moment you're anxious or scared or fearful that this world is overwhelming you, let me tell you, he has it. He is our peace. He is our steadfast anchor. Because all of these things were created by him and for him. Let me continue. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Does that sound familiar? Making peace by the blood of his cross. God the Son, Jesus the Christ, is worthy of our praise because he is indeed the redeemer. But more than this, he is the preeminent redeemer and king of all creation. He may have died a criminal's death on our behalf, but make no mistake. He is worthy of our affections. He is worthy of our praise because of what he has done. But trust also that all of creation will bow to him as king in the fullness of time. He is worthy of our praise. And I want us also to consider, thirdly, that God the Holy Spirit is worthy of our praise because he is the assurer. So look with me at verses 11 through 14. In him, 
we have obtained an inheritance, talking about Christ, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Let's talk about chronology here real quick. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed. Was it like I believed and then later on I was sealed by the Holy Spirit? No. In him, when you believed in the truth of the gospel, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It astounds me when I read these verses that you and I should have access to any inheritance at all. Again, we see that repeated phrase throughout this passage, in him. And it continues to emphasize God's agency on our behalf. He's the initiator. But here God, the Holy Spirit, specifically works to seal us as God's chosen, but also to set us apart for the inheritance to come. And I want to quickly discuss the Spirit's work of sealing us as those of faith. In Jeremiah 31, the Lord promises he will call again his people, that he will inscribe upon their hearts of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh and inscribe upon their heart his covenant and they will be his people set apart for his glory. And in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul tells us in verses 9 and 16 that the Holy Spirit works to solidify one's faith. He is the agent of assurance of faith. And if one does not have the Spirit, he or she cannot claim to be one with God through Christ, according to those texts. And in the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 16, you have an incredible incredible amount of literature that describe how the helper is meant to be on our side, how he's meant to come after Christ. And Jesus is saying, you want me to go because the helper is going to be better for you in the here and now. He says he will not leave the faithful as orphans, but he sends a helper to be with the faithful forever. This helper, the Holy Spirit, will testify to believers that Jesus is the Christ and help them keep his commandments. So the helper or the Holy Spirit also works to convict us of those sins that we are stubborn about. He works to sanctify us to where we look more and more like Jesus. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes to assure believers of their faith. To strengthen them in their faith. And to keep them secure in the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit glorifies the Son and he seals our hearts to do the same. Another thing to note about the work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to a place of praise, in my opinion, is how he is our, quote, guarantee of the inheritance to come. This phrase guarantee is actually a commercial term in the Greek, meaning it's transactional. It's like it's better translated as a down payment. Some of your translations may say down payment. It is a commercial term and it's best illustrated today by thinking about buying a house. Anybody bought a house? John? Okay. Well, your parents bought it, but that's fine. Um, But my wife is here tonight. I'm glad she's here. Say hey to Casey. She loves attention. Um, But I I think many of us have gone, I think, thinking about purchasing a house. But Casey and I bought several houses at this point in our lives. And you pay a down payment in order to get financing for the rest of it because they want to know, like, hey, you have some money, so you're not destitute and you're going to fault on this loan. But when you buy that home, You do not have to wait to pay off the house before you get to move in and call it home. So the down payment is a promise of what is to come, but it's also a taste of what is to be in the here and now. 
You've probably heard us use the term the already and not yet when it comes to the Christian faith. We live in this tension of walking in a sinful world still, waiting to be in glory with the Lord. That is the tension of already saved, being perfected through the Holy Spirit, along and along sanctified until one day we will be perfect in his presence forever because of his work in us. That's the tension we feel. Here, though, we get this understanding that he has paid the down payment. He's giving us a taste of that inheritance, knowing that we should be assured that we will have the inheritance to come. It's a down payment of a promise of what is to come here and now. And it's the idea in John 15, when you read, you know, I'm the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I'm him. That whole dialogue that Jesus has, that abiding language is empowered through the Holy Spirit. The taste that you get when you live with Christ, when you dwell in Christ, is enabled through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that fullness of time that we've read about is that moment when Christ redeems all of creation, when God says, now is the time. And he unifies it properly under the Lord once more. The inheritance we look to is that unity with God in his redeemed creation for all of eternity. I know that sounds probably far off right now and maybe a little weird for some of us, but I want you to think about what you were meant to be and what it will be like to be that forever in the presence of the one who created you. It's peace. It's knowing what we're meant to know and being in the presence of the one whom we were meant to know all along. So that said, the Holy Spirit seals us for the reality that we're in now. And not only that, we get to begin experiencing some of what is to be here and now. We're blessed to be united in spirit with other believers. We're blessed to have the Holy Spirit lead us away from sinful choices, where before we did not have that. We are blessed to be marked as the people of God by the Holy Spirit, to also avoid the wrath of God that will come against all sin, wickedness, and pain on that day. So when the fullness of time becomes the present, sin will not stand before our holy God. And his wrath will be meted out against sin and wickedness. It's just the truth of the scriptures. But this is yet another way the Holy Spirit seals us as God's own and is reminiscent of the Passover. Another of my former professors writes this about the Holy Spirit. He says, the Holy Spirit's seal protects the believers from the wrath that God will one day pour out on the wicked. The gift of the Holy Spirit also serves as a down payment on the inheritance that he will give to the faithful. He is saved from his wrath. The Spirit's presence with them is a guarantee that when God brings his purposes to an end, he will fully apply to them the redemption that Christ's death has accomplished for them. So the Holy Spirit is indeed worthy of our praise. He is involved in our salvation. He is involved in our sanctification. And he is involved in the full application of redemption. He works to secure us. He, he works to set us apart, and he sustains us in our faith until that day when we walk with God in a fully redeemed creation. And lastly, about the Holy Spirit. Considering everything that we've just talked about, I hope it's also comforting to know that as followers of Jesus, you are never alone to walk in faith based on your own strength. We are not saved by grace through faith, only to be bound in a lifelong struggle to maintain our faith in our own power. Now the Holy Spirit is with us and he is indeed our helper. And like I said, he's worthy of our praise as the assurer of our salvation and the bolsterer 
of our faithfulness. All right, so this may have been a slightly different approach to starting a series on Ephesians than you were expecting. But I was floored when I began preparing for this message by Paul's worshipfulness and the sense in which he begins this entire letter. But it begs the question, you know, okay, so we have this example of Paul just exuding praise, but what do we do with this? How can, what can I do with what we've covered? Well, I can tell you my personal takeaway in preparation is recognizing that humanity has never had an issue with being worshipful. We've never had an issue being worshipful. We express praise about numerous things in our lives all the time. Could be a sports team. A role model. Could be a sports team in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, right? Um, a role model. It could be a new line of clothing. It could be a vehicle that you've always wanted. It could be a vehicle that you already have that you just are like, let me put one more $500 piece of equipment on it. I don't know what it is. But we express praise all the time. Numerous things. And again, Tony Marita states this. He says, the question is not, do I worship? The question is, whom do I worship? God. Hopefully. <laughs> so are we worshiping the true triune God who has done so much for the sake of all of creation? Are we in awe or driven to worship when we come up against the mysteries of God? Do you struggle fathoming the depths of his love and grace toward you? I hope you do struggle with that. Because that struggle to grasp the depth of his love for his creation should stir our hearts to praise him, to love him all the more. And that's the challenge I found myself considering as I prepared for tonight. Are my affections stirred for God? Am I praising him in all? Does my life reflect my awe of him? In verses 11 through 12, again, of our main passage, they state one of our primary purposes in the, this life. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. It's a very strange phrasing, but what it means is those who have come to faith, their lives are to be for the praise of his glory. Our purpose is to be for the praise of his glory. We are to be about the praise of God's glory because he has done great things. I want to leave you with a quote from a theologian that I truly admire. His name is N.T. Wright, and he concludes this. He says, God has taken the initiative. God has done what was necessary at great cost to himself. To buy us back from the slavery of sin, God has given us the Spirit as a sign and foretaste of the whole renewed cosmos, which awaits us as our inheritance. Surely that truth causes us to praise. Would you pray with me? Father, you are good to us.